copy of God's Word with you, and I'm sure you did, open with me to the book of Matthew this morning, chapter 3, verse 8 through 12. Matthew 3, we're picking up where we left off last week, so this is a part 2 that sometimes happens in preaching dealing with the issue of repentance and fruitfulness and how these two, as um, Matthew has been showing us, are two sides of the same coin. Uh, To try to articulate one without the other would be in grave error. And here in chapter 3, we've been learning much, if you recall, about the ministry of John the Baptist. We've learned that John, in keeping with God's calling on his life, at some point, undisclosed in the scriptures, moved out of his parents' basement and out into the wilderness of Judea, which was, as Matthew clearly articulated, was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about John, that he would be a voice of one that was crying in the wilderness. And we've learned that John had uh, quite an extensive ministry platform. Sometimes we perhaps wrongly think that John was just a a little reed out there, but uh, it says that people were coming out of the wilderness from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. It seems very clear from Matthew's writing that John's ministry had a very far-reaching impact. It said that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to John for baptism of repentance, which... um, was a baptism that if anyone was willing to accept the message that John was preaching, there was going to need to be repentance. They were going to need to repent of their sins against God Almighty. John's message was like good news in times of wandering. There had been 400 years of prophetic silence, and John is the last Old Testament prophet that God sends on the scene to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And that very message that John preached, we saw last week, there in verse 2, where it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message for anyone willing to listen was that the kingdom of heaven, as it says, is at hand. It's a very simple message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when we think about uh, the fact that John's parents, his entire life, had been informing him that he was to be the forerunner of the one who was going to come and was going to sit on King David's throne and that that kingdom was going to endure forever and ever and ever, I think John had a very clear understanding, a very clear vision of the message that he was preaching when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As a matter of fact, um, being that Jesus and John were cousins, I have a feeling that around the, you know, the, the dinner table on occasions when families got together, that uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth with Mary and Joseph said, yeah, that angel showed up to me too. 
this is what he told us. Oh, really, this is what he told us. Now, we don't have recorded their conversations, but families talk, do they not? It would seem utterly inconceivable to think that those revelations that the angel Gabriel gave to them regarding their kids, who just happened to be cousins, would have sat in silence over family gatherings. I think that would be short-sighted indeed. John was not confused at all about the message. When he went out in the wilderness, he knew he was the one was out in the wilderness as a voice making straight the way of the Lord. And when he was preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was because the king who will be setting up that kingdom was his cousin, Jesus, whom the same angel showed up to Jesus' parents and said, you're going to be sitting on your father's throne, the throne of David, and it will be a throne that will last forever and ever and ever. And John believed this, and his life is indicative of what faith does. Faith works. And John was at work doing the will of the Father. And so he was saying, if you want to be ready and prepared for the king and his coming entrance and to be part of the people of God for whom that eternal kingdom was prepared for, this is what one must do. Repent. Repentance of sin, a changing of one's life, a turning from sin in our own ways and a turning to God in His ways, was the one requirement that John drops in front of the very message that he came preaching. And repentance, though, in the Greek, metanoia, oftentimes we want to hear people articulate that metanoia just simply means a change of mind. But you perhaps remember two weeks ago, or last week, I need to re-engage my mind, but I showed you the screen of metanoia from the Luaunida Greek lexicon, just a dictionary for Greek words, and it unequivocally articulates that metanoia isn't just simply a change of mind. It's the idea of the changing of the, of the mind for the purpose of changing the, the, the inner person, of changing the heart, of being a different person as a result of the change of mind. You're changing your mind about something because you're, you no longer believe that that something is worthy of your dedication and worthy of your efforts and your goals and your interest, and you have something new now that you believe is worthy of that. And so you've changed your mind. It changes your heart. It's changed your affections. You have something greater to live for. So your lifestyle becomes a lifestyle of desiring to be pleasing to God. As John says in 1 John 3, that those who are practitioners of righteousness are truly the children of God. It's a repentance that is seen in the life. And we see that many people went out to John. They repented of their sin and were publicly baptized. Publicly identifying with John's message. Publicly identifying that they believed that John was the one prophesied by Isaiah. I'm sure they had heard the scuttlebutt about the angel and all that that happened. And they believed that he was the one coming, making straight the way of the Lord, the King, the coming Messiah King. And so his message, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, think about how odd it would be, again, for Jewish people to be getting baptized the way Gentiles got immersed in water when they were converting to Judaism. 
Utterly strange indeed, but they believed that this was what God had sent the prophet to say, and they were doing what he said, even including the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both the political and the religious leaders of their day, believing that God's eternal kingdom was at hand. Now, it's also important to remember in that process that what John also said to those Pharisees and Sadducees is a very important piece. It's like a window into the mind and into the world of John the Baptist and into first century Judaism. Okay? And we saw that in verse 7. So when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, so again, the, the, the religious leaders, the, the, the local Leaders of, of that community were coming to be baptized by John and were being baptized. Notice what he says to them. You brood of vipers, which again, as I mentioned, is not the best way to start an evangelistic endeavor, but nonetheless, John the Baptist articulated it such. Who warned you to flee from, and we, look, we looked at this last week briefly, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now again, what wrath might John be thinking of? And it's at this point, we need to remember, John had no New Testament books to read. All he had was his Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, as we saw and discussed last week, when, and, and over the last year or so even, when we went through the book of Daniel recently, the Old Testament prophets spoke very vividly of a day of wrath, which was called and known as the day of the Lord. And the wrath that John speaks of here is a wrath that is clearly associated with and is as an establishing of the kingdom that was to come, the kingdom of the Messiah King, who was Jesus. And I'm mindful that John, having an Old Testament, was probably very familiar with Psalm 2, what we refer to as a messianic psalm. And just notice Psalm 2 here. I'm just going to Read through this and just pick up on this theme. Notice it says in Psalm 2, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Hence we know this is a messianic psalm. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. We saw that very clearly in the book of Daniel an eternal kingdom that would rule forever and ever over the nations, the very ends of the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron, wrath to come. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath. The day of the Lord's wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This psalm shows that when King Jesus establishes his kingdom at his second coming there will be wrath involved. The unbelieving nations will be broken as with a rod of iron. It says shattered as if 
earthenware. Now this is a very narrow word picture of the terrible devastation that the day of the Lord's wrath uh, actually is that will be preceding the setting up of the kingdom of heaven. And John the Baptist believed that what was about to happen when Jesus established his kingdom, what was his message? The kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. He believed that when King Jesus, his cousin, was coming to establish that kingdom to sit on his father David's throne forever and ever, that wrath would be associated with it. And this is why he's chiding those secular and religious leaders as if to say, who warned you to flee from that coming wrath? John believed in the coming wrath that was associated with that coming kingdom because that's what the Old Testament taught him. John didn't know about the church age, did he? John didn't have an idea about the church age. The distinction between Jesus' first and second comings, do we believe in the second coming? We believe that he came the first time? Yes, we do. We believe he's coming again? Yes, we do. John the Baptist was unable to articulate between the first and second comings. And we can't misunderstand this when trying to understand John, John's way of thinking, the way John is saying things, and the ministry that he had as a forerunner for Jesus. He held those two tightly together because in the Old Testament, they, they seem as if they are two things that perhaps are happening all at the same time. Somehow a suffering servant, very confusing to the Jewish nation because when their Messiah came, he was actually going to be a, a religious and secular leader who was going to establish a kingdom, overthrow the Roman government if it came at that time, and then establish a kingdom that would last forever and ever and ever. So fleeing the wrath to come would be fleeing the wrath of the Lamb as described when we looked at it several months ago. Fleeing the wrath of the Lamb as described in the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6. When the, when the Lamb comes again a second time. That's the very wrath that John was warning those, anybody willing to listen to his, to his message but said explicitly to those religious leaders who warned you to flee from that wrath. And the very last words, by the way, there in Psalm 2, verse 12, are some of the most important words that all people everywhere need heed. Notice what it says. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that good? Wrath is coming. How do you escape wrath? When he comes again the second time, not coming to be the suffering servant that dies upon the cross to make a way for sinful people to have their sins freely forgiven. He's coming to establish an eternal kingdom and wrath is coming with him. What a beautiful warning here in Psalm 2. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. And John shows us, all of us, exactly how to do just that. How to take refuge in Christ. It's through genuine repentance which can only be evidenced through the changing of one's life. Which is what John the Baptist starts to tell them where we pick up here in verse 8. 
Notice verse 8, Matthew 3. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bearing fruit that's in keeping with repentance can only, as I just mentioned, be evidenced in a person's life to the degree that they demonstrate through their living that Christ has become their king, their new master, their Lord, that they've actually experienced genuine repentance. They recognize that they were sinners and rebels against God, and they said, no mas, no more, not interested. And they turn from their ways, and they instead turn to following Christ, and they put faith in him. And then it doesn't end there. It's not, a one t- it's not like, a, like an inoculation, like some kind of shot you might get. It's a new heart. has everything to do with the new covenant. And that's a work of God his, in, by His Spirit. And that's why you've heard me say on so many occasions, you just can't fake genuine repentance forever. You could be like the seed that sprung up real quickly up by the side of the road when it first heard the gospel and got really excited about Jesus and, hey, forgiveness of sin... But then, you know, a month later, you're fizzled out and you're just back to doing everything you always did before. And there's no consistency in the change of life. There's no perseverance in the change of life. That's because your heart wasn't genuinely converted because it wasn't a genuine desire. Perhaps it was a desire likened unto a fire insurance that you wanted to put in your hip pocket to say, well, at least when I die, I know I'm going to heaven. But this side of heaven, man, I want to still live like I was living. I want to eat, drink, and be merry while I can, and enjoy this life as much as I can, because after all, I mean, how much fun is it going to be floating around on clouds forever and ever? (laughs) Right? You ever had those thoughts? Like, what are you going to do in heaven? Sounds like it's going to be kind of a boring place to be. So let's get all the gusto while we can, but I got my fire insurance. I said that prayer after walking an aisle. I got baptized. I'm in. I'm golden. No, A metanoia, a repentance that changes the mind, that changes the heart, is evidenced in the bearing of fruit. Now, is it the bearing of fruit that's how you go about procuring or or, uh, obtaining or earning one's salvation? Absolutely not. We can't get confused about that at all. We can't put somehow the the cart and the horse, so you got a cart, or you can't put the cart in front of the horse or whatever. You, you can't get these things confused. Genuine repentance, genuine conversion precedes the capacity to then live as a Christ follower. You're not living as a Christ follower to earn his good favor, to, to be better than the next person, just to be a good person, so I'm going to do some good deeds along the way, and that's how I'm getting into heaven. No, you, that, that doesn't work. You, can, you can't do enough good deeds. There, there's not, a, there's not a, enough eons of time and energy and enough deeds that one could do because you were born inherently with a sin nature that was born in rebellion against God has absolutely nothing to do with anything you do it has to do with your nature and that nature needs to be converted and that comes by way of repentance so John is letting these who are coming being publicly baptized He's letting them know, these broods of vipers, he's letting them know that, that if their repentance and baptism 
believing that the king is right on his heels and that the establishment of the kingdom of God is truly at hand, if that's genuine, it will be accompanied by an evidence of a change in their lives. They will not walk away from the Jordan waters and go back and be the exact same people that they were, doing the exact same stuff that they had been doing before. Now, real fast, does that, does that in indicate that we have to live perfectly once we get truly saved? Like, there's no room for sin? No. Absolutely not. Peter, deny the Lord. And what was the condition of his heart? He was grieved. He was grieved to his heart because he knew that he had sinned against God. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of the baptism of the Spirit that John's going to make mention of when the Holy Spirit becomes a permanent residence even within our heart. We have the Spirit within us so that we, in, in our flesh that we're still fighting and waging war against so that we don't do the things that we desire. But when we do and we fail and we sin against God, we have a true contrition of heart and we cry out to God for forgiveness and we say, please forgive me and help me to continue to live and to walk by faith. That's what genuine repentance also looks like when somebody is actually married. Now, I was thinking about um, a couple that Lisa and I knew way back in our days at Denton Bible Church. It was a young couple when we met them, uh, single. Denton Bible Church had a very active EE program, evangelistic, evangelism explosion program, and for everybody that visited the church which was a lot on a weekly basis because it was such a large place. They had these evangelism EE teams that would go out and knock on the doors of people who visited and, um, and go through that, that EE training they'd been through and sharing the gospel with people. Hi there, my name's Ben Averett. Saw that you visited Denton Bible Church this past week. Listen, if you were to die tonight and stand before God in heaven, what might you say as to why he should let you into, into his heaven? Well, I... Okay, let's go talk about it or whatever. This young couple, they were just canvassing. They ran out of the cards. There was an apartment complex. So one of the teams started just canvassing the apartment complex. They just started going through the apartment complex, going door to door. Anybody had opened up, hi, my name is Ben. This is so-and-so. And we're Denton Bible Church. Do you mind if we ask you a couple of questions? If you were to die tonight and stand before God in heaven and he were to say to you, why shall I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And so there was this young couple living together, two singles, not married, young. They end up inviting them into their apartment, having the full conversation. And these two believe. And they got converted that night. And they prayed and they asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into their heart and they repented of their sins. And you know what that genuine repentance looked like? Bearing fruit and keeping with repentance? They knew immediately, we've, we can't live together. And so they immediately, the next day, he packed up all his stuff and left. Because he knew that that was sin against the holy God. That's what bearing fruit and keeping with repentance looks like. It's an action. That young couple starts attending Denton Bible Church. They get baptized. They start getting discipled within a small group within the church. Within the year, they get married. Then they move back in together as a married couple the way it's supposed to happen. 
And then probably another year or so after that, Lisa and I were there for eight years. If you're thinking, oh, he's throwing out too many years. He's making, no, I'm telling you, we were there eight years. Within probably two years later, that couple is now leading small groups within the college ministry at Denton Bible Church. And they were a part of an EE evangelistic team that went out and started knocking door to door. That's a great example of what bearing fruit that's in keeping with repentance looks like. So if you ever get confused like in your own personal life, like what that might look like, come see Pastor Matt. He'll be glad to straighten you out on all that. It's really not complicated, is it? Is it complicated? It ain't complicated at all. It's actually very, very simple. We try to make it complicated because we want to accommodate our flesh. We want to make allowances for our flesh. And when trying to make allowances for our flesh, I think we have to call into question what really happened in the heart. Bear fruit, it's in keeping with repentance. R.T. France in the N-I-C-N-T, that's the New International Commentary on the New Testament. It's a great commentary set, by the way, if you're looking for a good one to purchase. Check out what he said. France said, true repentance is not a matter of words and ritual, but of a real change of life. The imagery of bearing fruit will also be deployed in Jesus' teaching until it reaches its climax in the condemnation of the Jewish leadership as the tenants who have failed to deliver the produce of God's vineyard. A situation which has been vividly illustrated by the, denun- by the destruction of the fruitless fig tree outside Jerusalem. It is by what we do in response to God's demands rather than by what we hear or say that we will be judged. Isn't that just cutting it straight right there? It truly is that simple. And it was Jesus' half-brother James who wrote that faith without works is dead, being by itself. This, by the way, is a very significant theme throughout the entirety of Matthew's gospel. I made mention to you guys uh, when I first started preaching through Matthew that John MacArthur, when he landed at um, Grace Community Church in Los Angeles over 50 years ago, the very first book that John MacArthur preached at, that, at Grace Community Church was the Gospel of Matthew. It took him seven years. I'm on pace to beat that, by the way. I know some of y'all are kind of doubting that. No, I'm on pace of beating seven years, I, I guarantee you, okay? So, so if, if it was seven years, I would have already buried some of y'all probably by the time I finished with it, okay? Hey, don't laugh. You're, you, you, yeah. No, but after the teaching of the Gospel of Matthew... John MacArthur said he was so struck by the recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the necessity of bearing fruit and keeping with repentance that he wrote um, a book titled The Gospel According to Jesus. And man, that book rocked the evangelical conservative world. When I got to Dallas Seminary uh, in the mid, when I got there, the early 90s, 
that, that was, there was a lot of scuttlebutt going on because MacArthur was calling some people by name, and in Dallas Seminary in particular, and they didn't like it. And so they were kind of, they kind of huddled up the team, and they had to find a way to, hey, we, you know. And so it got a little bit dicey. I can remember having some very uh, wonderfully engaged conversations on campus and in classes over that very issue of the Gospel of Matthew and MacArthur's book on the Gospel according to Jesus. Now, let me just say this real fast. If you've never read that book, it's still in print. I think it, will, I think it always will be. It's going to become one of those classic. Like, you, have some, you have some Calvin that you can still go and buy, I think, and if the Lord tarries for another 500 years, you're going to at least have one book from MacArthur, at least one, and it would be that one because it stirs the passions of people pretty deeply. If you haven't read it, I would encourage that you do, but also do a deep dive in the book of Matthew. Be a Berean. Don't just be emotional. Be a Berean. Be willing to be logically, because wisdom from above is first what? Pure and reasonable. James, see also Jesus' half-brother. It's reasonable. We don't go to the Word of God trying to have it tell us what we already want it to tell us. We go to the word of God as, as beggars in need of bread, and we allow the, the, the flow of Scripture to take us where good exegetical work takes us, where good hermeneutics takes us, where good word studies take us, where the immediate context takes us, and the broader context allows that to flow. Words have meanings within contexts, and we have to be willing to study them that way rather than cherry-picking a verse here and then cherry-picking this verse here and cherry-picking a bunch of verses and stacking them up on top of each other and having a stacked theology that can say anything we want it to say. And we can bend words to mean anything we want them to say just by simply saying, well, this word right here over in this book means this. Uh-oh, I just kicked something here. Matt, can you fix that, brother? I'm sorry. I'm going to go this side. So... This word over here means this, ergo. When I come all the way over to this other context that's completely unrelated, it's a word fallacy. This word over here has to have the same meaning that, the, that it was used right here, right? Because words always have the exact same meaning in every context, right? Right? You're just going to say no. No. How many of you have ever been to Turkey, the country? How many of you have ever eaten turkey? Are they the same? Have you ever called someone a turkey? Are those three the same? David, who did you call a turkey? <laughs> same word. It's always got to mean the same in every context, right? I shouldn't ask this one. No, no, wild turkey, but... Bible church, your teetotalers in here. No, and so word studies, words in context, because it has meaning within a particular context. We don't make the word say what we want it to say. We allow it to say what it says. Authorial intent is a very key reality within the interpretation of God's word. Well, John, it seems has the ability to anticipate the reply that he perhaps would get from his Jewish brethren concerning the need for repentance and then bearing fruit that was in keeping with repentance. As a 
means of entrance into this coming kingdom. Remember his message? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preparing the way for the king and the establishment of his kingdom. And he's saying, you want to get into this kingdom? Repent of your sins. Turn away from it. Change your mind and your heart and your action and your lives about who God is so that you can be a part of the kingdom that is prepared for you from before the foundations of the world. And as we saw in Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge in him because wrath is on its heels. Notice how he does this. Look at verse 9. Matthew chapter 3. He says, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God's able to raise up children to Abraham. They wrongly believed that being descendants of Abraham was all that was needed for them to be and have entrance into this coming kingdom of heaven. Nothing to do with heart condition, nothing to do with true contrition of the heart, nothing to do with life, just bloodline. And he, he's saying, hey, don't, don't think that just because you say you have Abraham, God can take stones and turn them into descendants of Abraham if he so choose, chose to. He's not going to. It's metaphorically speaking, he's not going to make that. He could, but he's not going to. That's, that's the, the point. He's, he's saying don't, don't rely on something Simply because you've grown up in your Jewish heritage, in your Jewish faith. Don't you recognize you're doing something that Jews were never called to do ever for repentance? And that's water baptism. God's doing something new here. And he's preparing the way for this coming kingdom. So he says to him in verse 10, listen, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear fruit, and I would say that that's in keeping with repentance, inserted it's in the context, is cut down and thrown into the fire. John clearly believed the long-awaited king and his kingdom were at hand, as was the coming wrath against unrepentant sinners. We again see this by his statement that the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. The trees being analogous for these Jewish people. The axe being analogous for God's coming wrath against unrepentant sinners. Their inability to enter into the kingdom. And as we see here, as John has already pointed out, people whose lives do not bear fruit, good deeds in keeping with repentance, are ultimately cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire here being a direct reference to the judgment to come. And while John was speaking specifically to the Pharisees and Sadducees here, this message of divine judgment by fire was and is to every person who has a desire to be a part of God's eternal kingdom forever and ever. Every tree, every person whose life works will tell the true story of their heart, of either genuine repentance evidenced by increasing fruitfulness or whose life works will tell a different story altogether. Which is sometimes good deeds even done for selfish reasons. Then, by way of transition, from John to Jesus... Matthew starts setting us up for Jesus' coming ministry. 
And he does so by quoting words. He quotes words that were part of John the Baptist's preaching ministry. Which, once again, gives us, as I mentioned, this little window into John's world. A window into the way that John's thinking went relative to how he was translating life, his Old Testament, what the angel had said to his parents, what he had heard, the things that he was doing, and the message that he was thus speaking about the kingdom of heaven being at hand. Notice what John said in verse 11 as he's transitioning, as Matthew is now transitioning from John to Jesus using John's words here. He says, as for me, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. John, again, his baptism was an outward act of faith that was indicative of an inward change of heart by means of repentance. The Apostle Paul himself, speaking of John's baptism in Acts 19.4, said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus Jesus, on the other hand, as John says, is coming after me. He's mightier than me. John, understanding who this was, that it was his cousin Jesus, he says, and knowing that he wasn't just his cousin, he knew that he was God, he says that he wasn't even worthy to remove the sandals from off his feet. The, low, the lowest duty of a slave, of a house slave, would, be, would have been the removal of the sandals of the owner and the, clean, and the cleansing of the feet. The very thing that Jesus had to do with his disciples, the night in which he was to be betrayed, there was no house boy there to take off their sandals and wash their feet, and no one even had a thought to do it. So as they sit down, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to do this. John's saying, I'm not even worthy to remove the sandals off the Messiah King's feet. This one, this one, notice the end of verse 11. He, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And fire. Here we see a contrast from John's baptism with the soon coming baptism that Jesus will bring when he comes. And it's very clear here that John isn't able to distinguish. I keep mentioning this. We, we need to understand this. Very significant to understand this. John's not able to distinguish between Jesus' two comings. Both, by the way, are mentioned here at the end of verse 11. Do you see this? Holy Spirit, first coming, fire. Baptism of Holy Spirit, first advent. Baptism by fire, second advent. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John held these two together. He believed they were coming at the exact same time. The mystery of the church age is indeed a very beautiful mystery that was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets that we now are privy to and have an understanding of. And then in verse 12, he kind of gives a description of this this day right here, that's the second coming of baptism by fire. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and and this is what's going to happen at the second coming. And who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The day of the Lord wrath? 
the baptism of fire, day of the Lord wrath, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here in verse 12, John is describing how there is going to be a sharp distinction between the people of God and those who choose not to follow him. Verse 12 is here a is using very rudimentary language describing, it seems in a very unique way, describing the rapture of the church, that of gathering the wheat into the barn, and then the day of the Lord wrath being poured out on the chaff with unquenchable fire, the baptism by fire. This, by the way, the, a lot of people say, oh, the baptism by fire, that's, that's Pentecost. No, that's not Pentecost. They had flames of fire. Does fire mean fire here? Does fire, fire, turkey and turkey? No, that's not. That's not Pentecost fire. This is Pentecost fire. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost fire. Day of the Lord. Second coming wrath. And he will burn up the chaff unbelieving, unwilling to repent. Or they had, a, they had a repentance, but their life never demonstrated it, but they had their fire insurance in their pocket. Well, that fire insurance is going to burn up with them because they never cashed it in with a changed heart that loved the Lord. And this winnowing fork that does the... the threshing let me show you where else we see this winnowing fork and I don't have time to go into and do an exposition on the entirety of this this is why I know that you're a good bunch of Bereans here a lot of people here who love to study and you're gonna have to do this but I'm saying that I'm telling what I'm believing and saying here is that this fits contextually and that this is same for same this is that Revelation 14 Keep the winnowing fork. Separation, wheat, chaff, wheat into the barn. Rapture, chaff, unquenchable fire. Revelation 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle, a winnowing fork in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. Wheat into a barn, rapture followed by day of the Lord's wrath, baptism by fire. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, the winnowing fork, saying, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth 
and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. So again, knowing that John the Baptist didn't have a New Testament, John the Baptist wasn't reading from Revelation. John the Baptist didn't have any of this. This is John, John the Apostle by revelation of the Spirit, a revelation from Jesus Christ to John the Apostle while on the island of Patmos is saying the same thing of the great reaping. But John the Baptist, he had his Old Testament. So where would John the Baptist have had his understanding for what he was preaching of this spirit baptism and fire? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is truly a thing of beauty. It's poetry of unequaled magnitude and sense. John got his cues and his order and his preaching from the book of Joel. Chapters 2 and 3. I don't have enough room on it. On I, I can't put Joel chapter 2 and 3 on here unless I just do it with a, a whole bunch of slides, uh, just one after the other. So open your Bible to Joel. You got a minute? You want to see this? Well, I do. This is really good. You're going to have to follow along in Joel, though. I, I just can't, can't do it justice with little slides. Joel chapter 2. Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. And this is the day of the Lord's wrath. That day is coming. Surely it's near. And then he starts giving some description of what this coming day of wrath looks like a day of darkness verse 2 a, and gloom a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountains so there is a great and mighty people there has never been anything like it nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns Baptism of fire, the coming day of the Lord. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. I believe this is speaking of the fire that's consuming. It's like horses that are just moving, and it's, there's no way to escape it. Verse 5, with a noise as of chariots, they leap on the top of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle before them, 
the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers, and they, and, and they each march in line, and they, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not, verse 8, they do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. Verse 10, before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Cosmic disturbance, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, John the Baptist preaching, return to me with all your heart, repent for the day of the Lord, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, the wrath of the day of the Lord? John is saying, repent, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning. Verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, satisfy the... Sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and let the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance. Repent, repent, change your heart. God is compassionate, loving, abounding in kindness and relenting of evil. Who warned you to flee from that wrath to come? Here in Joel 2, we see the day of the Lord wrath, verse 1 through verse 12, verse 13 through verse 17. We see the, the need for people to repent, a way of escape. And then in verse 18... Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. Oh, he's going to the land now. Here he's going to be talking about the land, the beautiful land that, and things that are going to be happening in that millennial kingdom. After the day of the Lord, after the wrath, the Lord will be zealous for his land, the land that he made by promise to Abraham. And will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That's over. He's going to be establishing his people in the land. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into the parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard in the western sea, and its stench will rise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. The winnowing sickle has gone in. The grapes of wrath were gathered. The battle of Armageddon has come. It's gone. There's been a great day of judgment. 
a baptism by fire. Verse 21, do not fear, O land, rejoice and be glad, for the Lord God has done great things. Do not fear, beast of the field, for the pastures of, of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain, as before. The millennial kingdom blessings of King Jesus are going to be magnanimous. The threshing floor, verse 24, will be full of grain, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The creeping locust, stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you, and you will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. He's going to establish that kingdom that will endure forever and ever. His people will never be put to shame. Thus, verse 27, you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other and my people will never be put to shame shame now the passage you're familiar with Joel 2 28 this is John the Baptist this is where John the Baptist got his preaching Baptist he's the one coming after me he's mighty or not he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire two advents it will come about after this now this is an important distinction and you got to listen to me right here this is a very key piece in Joel chapter 2 verse 28 if you have access to resources, go, go back to your Hebrew software that can pull up and show you, here's the Hebrew text and here's the English translation. Okay, and in doing that, if, if you're looking at the New American, it says, it will come about after this. That entire first portion, it will come about, isn't even in the original. The only thing that's sitting right there in the Hebrew Bible are the words, after this. After this. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These two verses right here, 28 and 29, are dealing with the first advent and the church age. One of the key interpretive pieces here is those two words, after this. So again, from Joel 2, 1, verse 1, for the day of the Lord's coming. Verse 11, the day of the Lord is indeed great. Verse 12, here's how you avoid the day of the Lord. Rend your heart. He's compassionate. He will show mercy. Verse 18, he's going to be reestablishing a kingdom and his people will be in that millennial land and there will be plenty to eat. Everyone will be satisfied and his people will never be again be put to shame. And you will know that he is in the midst of his people. Verse 28, 
after this. After what? After verse 28 and 29. After verse 28 and 29, that's when the things of verse 1 through verse 27 are going to come. After this. So he pour, So he, he establishes from verse 28 all the way through the end of chapter 3, the after this portion. So after these things happen, this is when this is going to take place. And how do we know that? Well, was it not Peter himself on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? In the pouring out of the Spirit as evidenced by speaking in different languages? Did he not quote Joel 2, verse 28, down through verse 32? question is, yes, he did. And he said that what you've seen, that this right here, what you've seen is in fulfillment of this. And this is how we know a key interpretive piece in Joel 2, 28 is the very beginning of verse 28 when it says, after this. Because the day of the Lord and all that wrath does not precede the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That takes place first. So after this, after I pour out my Spirit on all mankind, after your sons and your daughters prophesy and old men dream dreams and young men see visions, after these things, after I pour out my Spirit on all people in those days, after this, the day of the wrath of the Lord, that's when this is coming. And it's going to be followed, you're going to have the opportunity to repent, but it's going to be followed by a millennial kingdom where, there's going to be t- where, where the, the produce is it's, it's going to be gloriously beautiful. And how do we know again? Because then he just picks up on it on the same portion there in verse 30. Notice what he said. So after the first advent, the pouring out of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, cosmic disturbances, and the moon into blood. And here it is, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So after the pouring out of the Spirit, what follows is that coming day of the Lord. So we have to understand, and this is where John didn't understand the distinction between the first and second advent. John believed that the king was coming and wrath was coming on his heels. He held these two, these two concepts side by side. But, it will come, but notice, let me finish reading this. And it will come about, verse 32, and it will come about after that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be delivered for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. For behold, chapter 3, in those days and at that time, then I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, the land promise. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. And they have divided up my land and they have cast lots from my people, traded. Okay, you do all this and then you get all the way over again. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. It's just a recapitulation of the coming baptism by fire. You want to know where John the Baptist got his his preaching cues when he said that the one who's coming after him has a winnowing fork and he's thoroughly going to thresh the the earth and gather wheat into his barn and the chaff, the unbelievers are going to be burned up with unquenchable fire. 
This is the one, where is it, where is it, where is it, right here. Nope, right here. This is the one who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. First advent, second advent. Church age, the day of the Lord wrath, and everything that follows with it right there. Just like Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Exact same order. Oh, and by the way, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's another indication that what Joel was doing there is saying after this, after the coming of the Spirit, that's when these things are going to happen. This is where John got his message. Isn't that great? I told you, it's, it's poetry of unestimable value, and it's just so beautiful, is it not? The weaving together of the Word of God, how the Word of God just makes this beautiful music when you pull these parts together and you just let them just let them speak and you let good exegetical work take you where it takes you and you allow that to develop your doctrines and your understanding of how God is doing what he's doing amen you've been patient thank you and I'm out of I'm way past my time there's a little bit more than you might normally get but I've, I've definitely given you something to chew on haven't I that feeling you're having right now, like, it's a good feeling. When, when you leave church and you have the thought, I need to go and look into something, that's probably a pretty good feeling. Allow it to drive you into the Word of God with a desire to know what the Word of God is saying. Amen.